take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Ever since I had the conversation with uh, Sarah in the previous episode, and she, she mentioned that she took part in healing circles using psychedelics to help with her, her mental health and, and really explore herself. And we talked about ego and all these different things. I've, I've been super fascinated in this subject with the relation of psychedelics and, and mental illnesses and mental health. And after randomly scouting people on Twitter, I found one and I'm so, so happy and pleased to be joined by Haley Duran. Haley, thank you so much, first off, for joining me. I'm very glad to be here. Um, so you are in the midst of your PhD uh, studying kind of psychedelic research. Is Am I kind of correct in how I said that? So I just started a PhD program in okay. health behavior at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, where there's some ongoing um, clinical trials related to psychedelics. So right now, the project we're focused most on is looking at psilocybin, which is the active component in magic mushrooms, assisted therapies, potential to help people with cocaine use disorder. Mm. And we're definitely going to touch on that. But first... Because a lot of people who are going to be listening to this are, are one, going to be taken back, I think, with the first time that they hear psychedelics, drugs, and, and mental health being used together as, as kind of healing for, for all these disorders. So let's just lay the groundwork here. When we say psychedelics, like, what does that actually mean? So when I talk about psychedelics, I'm generally thinking of what's often termed as classical psychedelics. So these are things like DMT, ayahuasca, which contains DMT, um, mescaline, psilocybin in magic mushrooms, and LST. And all of these different drugs are kind of united by their mechanism at one particular serotonin receptor, the 5-HT2A receptor, which is basically like a trip switch, you can think of it, because you could actually block this receptor and there will be no effects um, from psychedelics, even if you give a person psychedelics. But things like MDMA or ecstasy, which are often kind of lumped in with psychedelics, aren't really classical psychedelics per se. Right. So more kind of naturally occurring um, elements or, or off mic, you kind of mentioned like a plant, like kind of plant um, medicine, I guess, rather than engineered like chemically drugs no, no. Okay. um you could have something um like doi which has um action at that particular serotonin receptor and that would be considered a classical psychedelic mm -hmm. um but things like mdma are different because they're dumping serotonin out and their effects are really marked by a lot of very different phenomenon like mdma is really about like empathy kind of and classical psychedelics are more about people's expectations of the world being blown open interesting okay how did you become interested in this particular field of study because i know we were talking in in, in some states and cities in america that they've decriminalized this and there's the potential for for research. 
I know here in Canada, where I'm from, uh, I do not believe there's been any talk whatsoever of decriminalizing or, or progressing the field of study. Uh, and it's still classified as just pure, like it's illegal, uh, basically up here. So how did you kind of fall into this area of research? So first of all, it being potentially decriminalized in some cities doesn't really have an impact on research. We still have to go through all the bureaucratic hoops to jump through for it being a schedule one drug, which means it has supposedly no known medical use. It's in the same category as things like heroin. Um, so we still have to do all those, um, handle all those barriers. Um, but how did I get drawn into it? Um, well, I've always been very interested in science, very broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. And just, I remember being in high school and reading like very basically about like some of the, the brain imaging work going on with psychedelics and how it just shows us so much about the basics of the mind and brain and being really drawn in and fascinated that way. And then also seeing that it was a field that combined like psychology and neuroscience and philosophy and very multidisciplinary. And I really liked that. And also just thinking about how severe the current mental health crisis is everywhere. Depression is vastly increasing. Suicide is increasing. Um, addiction. So many things. And we don't really have a way to treat a lot of those conditions well. People are often prescribed SSRIs, which we know for mild to moderate depression are about as effective as a placebo. Um, and plus people are just, they're on these medications chronically and then they try to get off them and experience um, basically withdrawal symptoms trying to get off of it. And that keeps them from progressing and getting better. Um, so I think that the science being interesting as well as the need for novel treatments is really what drew me into the field. And there being so many questions to, to answer because the field has been shut off for since like the, the late 60s. So it's like it's a time capsule almost. And now we have the tools with brain imaging to really understand and pick apart what's going on. That's for first off, like bravo, finding a need and then, you know, dedicating your life to, to trying to figure that out and solve that problem. I, every time I hear that from people, I'm just, you know, like stand, standing ovation for me. Cause as someone who suffers from mental illness, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have your own struggles, but, and I'm on SSRIs, like it, everything you just said, I'm like, ah, it's so true. And that people are actually interested in solving this problem um, with different ways that we don't necessarily always think about, especially as like a broader society who's not involved in science. Like first off, just that's awesome. Mm -hmm. How do psychedelics help, especially when it comes to, to mental illness? All right. So there, that's a very broad question that can okay. be answered from multiple different levels. But if we think about, mental illnesses in general, um, things like depression, um, addiction, um, anorexia, um, 
so many different things, OCD, they're all categorized kind of by overly rigid thought patterns and people focusing a lot on themselves. When somebody is really depressed, they ruminate a lot. They're focused on the past. They're caught up with thinking of what could I have done better and stuff like that. So it's a lot of times many mental illnesses can be characterized by that restrictive pattern of thought that's focused on the self. Psychedelics um, kind of broaden people's perspectives. They allow them to <laughs> examine the external environment kind of without just thinking of themselves first. So you see this kind of in terms of people after a psychedelic experience reporting openness, um, increases in openness as a personality trait, um, and increase sense of connection to themselves and to other people and nature and all of that. So it's getting them out of their mind, out of their self-focus, repetitive self-focus, and able to explore new resources in the environment. Um, and there's some suggestion that kind of neurologically, this correlates kind of strongly to networks in the brain that are really closely tied to the sense of self. So the default mode network um, being the most prevalent network um, affected um, and that when active is kind of responsible for like mind wandering and ego and stuff like that. But psychedelics disintegrate the communication between key hubs in the network and that kind of removes the sense of self as the main point of reference and allows the mind to expand in all these different pathways and creates kind of a chaotic soup of all these different novel connections in terms of connectivity in the brain. But that's also kind of happening subjectively at the same time as the person is able to um, think of perspectives, take have perspectives uh, of whatever is going on in their lives in a new way, in a way that's not self-focused. So that's kind of the unitive kind of idea of why psychedelics work for so many seemingly different conditions. It's not people randomly applying it and thinking, oh, well, this is just going to work. Psychedelics are magical. There is a pattern to what sort of conditions that they could potentially treat. And I think it's important to really point out to people how these things are working in the mind and brain. Right. You, you kind of touched on it. Um, it's interesting, like when you hear people talk about, particularly, you know, DMT and, and ayahuasca, that these people have very intense experiences and that when they come out of it, like you said, they have like a shaped perspective and that it like, it's almost, I mean, I don't know what's going on in these people's lives when, when they, when they say that I was just listening to Miley Cyrus yesterday in an interview and she was talking about doing ayahuasca and DMT and, and having it shape her perspective. What I'm interested in is it's like, are these drugs, particularly those two, so strong that you only need to take them once and it could potentially fix you? I'll just say that for lack of a better term. Or is it like more studying the effects of microdosing or taking them periodically to like refresh it? Like how does that all kind of work? So a lot of 
clinical trials, they will give people a very limited number of sessions, like one to two. Um, and people report having life-changing experiences. But this is also within the context often of therapy. People are coming in for multiple preparatory sessions, for integration sessions. They're putting in the work to really get the most out of the experience and then to take whatever they learn from that ego-dissolving, um, perspective-shifting experience and apply it to their lives. Um, so it, it's definitely about the whole, the, the packaging of the experience, what, what's happening before and after. Um, so I think that it can, for some people, just be a one-time thing and they'll get a lot of benefit from it um, if it's in a supportive context. Um, and, but microdosing, the research with microdosing so far has not been that supportive of it really improving people's like cognition and stuff like that, which is the main thing that a lot of people kind of talk about it as being helpful for. It's kind of a Silicon Valley trend and we really haven't been able to distinguish it that much from a placebo effect. Mm. Um, so I think it's really the, the mind-altering experiences that disrupt a person's whole sense of self and their expectations about the world that really have the benefit, but they have to be happening in a context where those extreme experiences can be made into some sort of tangible, mm -hmm. beneficial change in the person's life. So you're just saying you can't just, you know, you're sitting at home and, and you know, take some, some magic mushrooms and you're, you know, it's, you're going to just come out of it and your depression's going to be solved. I mean, I'm not saying that can't happen, but it, it's more of like a therapy. Like, are you walking, like, is there like a, a therapist or somebody with experience that's like walking you through the journey, um, like taking you through it? Um, in in the mold of a of a process, like you said, you got to take something mm -hmm. tangible from it. So you know you're not just giving it to them in a room and then like seeing what happens and then asking asking afterwards, like, okay, how do you feel? Yeah, I think that's really critical. I think that the more support is given to a person after a trip, or even if they're just using their own practices to kind of structure in that shift in perspective into their life, I think they're going to get a lot more benefit from it. There is actually a study done that looked at high support. So people who were encouraged to like meditate and journal, and they had a, a group that was just to like chat about their experiences versus a lower, well, a standard support group, which just had the like typical sort of integration one-on-one -on -one sessions after the experiences um, for a high dose of psilocybin for both groups. And the people who are in the high support group, um, those were the people who really six months later reported having like their lives change. Um, and it was noticeable by people who knew them. They reported that they saw them as being more altruistic and having become more spiritual and things like that. So I think that it really, is essential that you take the the fluidity that 
occurs post psychedelics and apply it to broadening your behavior and thought patterns. Um, so kind of, you can think of it this way. If a person right after doing that afterglow phase is really like kind of motivated to change their like lives, it's super important that they take actual steps to do so. Um, and like, I don't know, start going to like a meditation group or journaling consistently or just trying to talk to more people because over time, those resources are going to accumulate and inspire the person to feel better on a daily basis more. And it's going to build from there. And I think that's kind of the fundamental difference between psychedelic treatment and conventional treatment is that there's that broadening of people's perspectives and willingness to try new things. It's really interesting. And, and as you're talking about it, you know, as I've been talking with people and hearing their perspectives, learning about all this stuff, you know, I, I see how that works. But, you know, for someone who's probably totally removed from it, I think there's a lot of stigma attached to it, not only with, you know, you know like you said, there's stage, you know, class one schedule A drugs that, you know, are considered very bad and harmful with no medical benefit, but it also has that, especially with, with boomers, quote boomers, <laughs> that that hippie stigma is still attached to it, right? Like thinking about people meditating and, and group circles and talking about you, right? It's it, they they almost just dismiss it before hearing even any of the scientific evidence, and it's it's so unfortunate. And then I feel like some of those people end up getting into government and, and blocking everything. Yeah. I think that the more research gets out there, the more policy will eventually change to react to that. Um, it's going to be a process, but I think that a big thing is now a lot of younger people are interested in going into psychedelic research. And there is now like, basically like professional like um professional development organizations for people interested in psychedelic science um the intercollegiate psychedelic network being like one example of that people can join that and connect with other people interested in the field we have like things like journal clubs um and conferences and things like that and it's really kind of showing that there's a completely different side to psychedelics it can be absolutely legitimately a, a a research field like any other so i think that there is that switch that's going on have you had an opportunity while you're studying to either see brain imaging scans like in real time while people are tripping or maybe at least pictures uh, like what's happening with the brain um, particularly when you're looking at an image, like what, what is causing, like, are, are we seeing good things? We're seeing bad things. Like what's happening there? So, um, you're saying looking at a person's brain while they're actually tripping. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have not yet had the opportunity to do that. Um, the imaging we're doing here is looking at before and after changes. Um, and I have not yet analyze the data for that but overall it, it is typically marked by like based on other people's studies um that increase of 
or decrease of predictability in brain patterns. Um, basically, the networks that typically make up the brain, instead of being distinct neighborhoods, if you will, they that only communicate with each other, they're communicating with networks all around the rest of the brain. It's kind of like mm. somebody gave a little neighborhood the internet, and now it's communicating with some neighborhood across the globe. So basically there's that lack of within network connectivity and then an increase in between network connectivity is a, a broad pattern and that kind of perhaps maps onto a more flexible perspective. Um, and then, yeah, I would say that's like a really core finding in the networks that are related to sense of self being disrupted also. Interesting. So let's talk about your research. So you said you're studying the effects of um, psychedelics when treating like cocaine addiction, basically. Mm-hmm. Share a little bit about that. What are you finding? What What's some of the processes that you're using? And, and you know, what's the, I guess the, God, I haven't taken science in a long time, the, the hypothesis that you're, you're trying to, to solve here? <laughs> All right. So basically we're trying to understand how it is, um, psilocybin assisted therapy an effective ineffective treatment for cocaine use disorder um, and my work is kind of interested in do, or looking at how how is it potentially benefiting people like what mat- what patterns can we map it onto in terms of changes in like thought so um, kind of I want to look at <laughs> detecting changes in language patterns that are indicative of people becoming less self-focused and also having a more external frame of reference and also becoming more positive potentially and all of this mapping onto their language just speaking randomly in a therapy session Mm. because from that instead of it being biased by their expectancies like you would get with a questionnaire we're actually looking at what is this person's change in cognition and just a normal sort of interaction and then mapping that on to changes in the brain looking at if there are um, decreases in activity in networks that are important for sense of self and then also seeing if that there's that decrease predictability in the brain's connections. And also, aside from just the language aspects and the neurological aspects, seeing if these people are um, just becoming like more optimistic and like socially engaged, um, sort of the whole broaden and build perspective where if somebody has a really positive, awe-inspiring experience, then that's going to get them to look outside themselves more and from there build the resources like i mentioned earlier that perpetuate well-being interesting so you are there particular words um you know patterns in 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 speech when you, so when you say you're like looking at that distinct change in how they're speaking in a therapy session i'm just like you can kind of predict what someone's going to do just by the the way they're they're interacting. Is mm-hmm. that what I'm kind of getting at there? So it's a bit more subtle. Um, 
a lot of studies have found that people with a variety of mental illnesses from schizophrenia to anxiety to depression to uh, chronic pain conditions show an increase in what's called self-referential language. So saying like, I am what I, I am, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, so just using like the word I and mine and all of that a lot, personal mm. pronouns that shows that the person has a heavy self-focus, whereas people who are, who tend to have higher levels of well-being, they use more other focused pronouns and refer to other people more. Um, and so you can see this shift in perspective from just the self to being more engaged with the world around them through this. And then also <clears throat> a lot of times people who have cocaine addiction, they're kind of, they're <clears throat> like, what am I going to have to give up that I was doing before now that I'm trying to quit cocaine? And it's very past focused. Um, I want to see if their language becomes more future focused, like I am going to be able to to make more friends now or something like that. So it's a positive future focus. And I think that you could pick that up in language. And then you can also see if those language changes have a biological basis in the brain. I love that's why I love talking <laughs> science to like brilliant people because you guys just say it so casually and you're just like, yeah. And it's just like, for me, I'm like, like my mind's just exploding. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so that's, that's cool. I, I'm curious. And I don't know. I, 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 sometimes I just like to ramble and bring up things that come to mind. So if you don't know the answer, it's totally cool. But I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of, you know, where we're at in the pandemic. And I know one of the symptoms of the pandemic that doesn't often get talked about talked about is kind of the addiction issues, especially in particular when it comes to opioids and overdosing. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of curious because, you know, opioids give you that kind of euphoric sense of feeling and, and, and everything. But I'm, I'm just wondering if, I don't know if you know if anyone's studying perhaps the effects of, you know, psychedelics and treating like that sort of addiction. Uh, is there potential to use these drugs to combat what's what's happening with the opioid crisis throughout North America? I think that's definitely an interesting area of inquiry that definitely needs to be further mm -hmm. examined. Um, I don't know of anybody doing that work with classical psychedelics. Um, Ibogaine, I know, has been used a lot in treatment centers in Mexico very successfully to kind of combat the withdrawal symptoms a person experiences while trying to come off opioids. And that's a bit different than a classical psychedelic per se, because it has some action at the opioid receptors. Um, but I definitely think that um, the pandemic has definitely brought the, the growing mental health crisis mm. to a crescendo. Um, you look at like the rates of depression. I believe that I read somewhere that like 25% of Americans reported like COVID depression, um, basically. And there's been increases in suicide as well. And it's just a very dire time for 
a lot of people. Um, and you think about it too, like, it, especially in the early days um, with like stay at home orders, we were completely kind of cut off from social contact um, and forced to isolate. And that's kind of, again, showing how that, the, the importance of us as social creatures is being connected and not just ruminating in our own thoughts and being caught in a loop of self-focus. Um, and then also think about with the pandemic to every day kind of feeling the same, there's no like novelty. Um, mm -hmm. And that too, um, kind of being a concrete um, that limits people's like thoughts um, too. If they're not having new experiences, they're not going to be having that, that ability to think dynamically perhaps. Um, so that's, really show that's a good example of a downward spiral basically um and why the pandemic has been potentially toxic to so many people's health mm -hmm. i read um there was a canadian study that was done by the government and in particular with youth the leading cause of death between children the age of 10 and 14 in canada is suicide in the pandemic and it's just like whole like holy shit like if that doesn't spell crisis to people, you know, beyond just the effects of the virus and the economy, like since day one, the, the mental health aspect of this has been one of my biggest concerns because the effects it had on me, especially before, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know in Alabama, it's a little warmer, but you're from, you know, the Northern states, so you know how cold it gets. Um, once we get locked back up into winter time and we can't see people and, like I get really worried again. It's it's scary, for sure. Um, I'm interested too. You know, in these conferences, in with your 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 peers, your colleagues, professors, are there other works and research being done with psychedelics that kind of excite you? That get you really interested to see the outcomes of of what they're studying. Um. I, I'm really interested in some work that's being done at John Hopkins right now that's looking at um, salvia actually in an fMRI for like the first time ever. There's never been any brain imaging with that. So I think that's going to be a really like intriguing mm. paper to come out. Um, I, I'm really excited for the potential of there to be some brain imaging with mescaline as well. Um, and I know these are all like sort of basic science things, not really set on like treating people. But once we understand the the mechanism, the basic mechanisms of these drugs, then we can effectively potentially find um, or apply them to conditions that need them. So I think understanding the basics and then from there branching out into conditions is important. Right. I guess that's important to note that there's still so much that's unknown when it comes to these these drugs. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Have you seen the Netflix documentary uh, Business of Drugs? No, I have not. Okay. So they have an episode on this kind of topic and I wish I remember his name. Like I know people know like Terrence McKenna is one of the big psychedelic people and who talked about this, but there's another guy who had like a, a lab in the sixties that then went to jail and, and got caught up who was studying this. And they were mentioning that that part, and, and you referenced it earlier that 
we had a little bit of research in the 60s. I, I know if you're a conspiracy theorist, when you talk about LSD and the CIA and, and all those different things as well. But basically, since the 60s, early 70s to kind of like now, there's really been no research. So, of course, it would make sense that we still have a lot to understand about everything. Um, and there's still a lot of unknowns. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm curious, you know, we talk about all the benefits, but it's also important to note the risks, potential, you know, downfalls of that. In your expertise, what are some areas that, you know, we look for to be perhaps problematic, whether that's research-based or or socially based, um, when it comes to studying these, these drugs and then perhaps using them for treatments? So the the caveat that there has historically been like the most discussion about is can these substances potentially set off um, or induce schizophrenia in people with predispositions to it? Um, a family history of psychosis is or psychotic disorders is a contraindication for pretty much for all of the studies out there. Um, and I find that interesting because there, there have been some epidemiological studies that look at like it, just people using psychedelics in general, are they at an increased risk for developing mental illnesses? And the, the answer over and over again is no. Um, but that contraindication still exists. Um, and I think that needs to be more thoroughly examined. And I think we need to actually be asking, surveying people who have a family history of schizophrenia, their response to psychedelics, because it seems to me like there hasn't been any real research seeing how much of a contraindication this is, because things like um, stimulant medication for ADHD, Adderall, um, has actually been found to increase somebody's odds of developing schizophrenia as well. So I'm not, with the incidences of how often somebody might potentially have a psychotic um, episode or develop schizophrenia after a psychedelic experience being so, so low, like I don't think it's ever, it's never been reported in a modern clinical trial, um, but there are a few cases that were noted in the 1960s. Um, with it being so low, is it of comparable risk to medications that are already widely prescribed um, without people having to worry about having a family history or anything like that? So I think that's kind of one thing that people have been worried about that I'm not sure how much evidence we have for. but. I would say that the biggest risk um, is people having, just in the community, having a really powerful experience and not knowing how what to do with it and how to integrate it into their mm. daily life. Um, and then perhaps kind of as a coping mechanism to to limit the like uncertainty they're feeling about like reality after such a profound mind-blowing experience they develop kind of 
magical like sort of beliefs about the world and kind of fall into new age traps and spiritual bypassing and that sort of thing mm -hmm. um and that being potentially <laughs> problematic um and just i think it's very important to to focus on integration more both in a community um as well as in research and i think that as these drugs become decriminalized in the U.S., it's going to be vital that people are trying to form um, integration support groups um, so that people can connect and share their experiences and stuff like that. And so that these substances aren't just thought of as some interesting novelty, but they're thought of as a potentially healing tool with the right. right. I know I had that conversation on a on an episode just uh, recently with uh, my friend Maddie, who's a, a cannabis CBD expert. And she was talking about the, that potentially that sometimes cannabis can lead to people with a predisposition, family history of schizophrenia, that it can lead to that also manifesting after they, they try cannabis. And so that's interesting that it also kind of comes up potentially in, in this area of study. I'm interested particularly in the trip. So I know, and I don't know if these stories are actually true or if they were just wives tales, but you know, there was the story of, uh, I remember hearing about some guy who was on LSD who jumped out of a window because he thought he was a bird. Um, you know, I think there's sort of a stigma that people who are tripping, especially after that kind of, and I'm not saying that basalts or psychedelics, not the same thing, but you know, that created a scare with people on drugs and, and how they were reacting to them. You know, when is there a concern, you know, scientifically that, you know, people who take psychedelics and are experiencing hallucinations that maybe they're a danger to themselves or other people? Um, well, there have been studies that or there's a really sort of well-known review, like article that looks at the risk um, of using a particular drug and its potential harm to you and to others and psilocybin ranks i believe the lowest or one of the lowest mm. um and lsd was also very low compared to um even things like um I'm trying to think of the actual chart oh i could pull up the chart but anyway the, they're definitely it's something to be cautious of what somebody could do while they're um, tripping, but if they're in a supportive environment with somebody who has experience with these states, I don't think that there is a whole lot that could go wrong, um, particularly if they're starting with a, a smaller dose. Right. Um, I'm also curious, has there been research into using these but also kind of like modifying them somehow. I don't even know if it's possible to like get rid of the hallucination part. So you kind of get the effects without the hallucination or is that hallucination kind of like the integral part of this working medically um, used as medicine? So as I was saying at the beginning of our like conversation, that one serotonin receptor, the 5-HC2A receptor if you 
give somebody a receptor blocker of that so that the LSD or psilocybin or whatever can't bind to it, the person reports almost no subjective effects. And there aren't really any huge changes in the brain as well. So it seems that if something has activity at these receptors, it is going to be the trip switch and people are going to have an experience. <laughs> right. So that's why it's important, people. If you're going to try this, do it with someone experienced who, who's, again, like she said. Um, yeah, set and setting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's interesting because I think a lot of people, like, I mean, even when it comes to cannabis, people are like, well, I don't want to feel high. I just, like, I want the, want the benefits, but I don't want to be high. I don't like being high. I don't like losing control. And I guess a hallucination mm-hmm. is, like, pretty much the ultimate loss of control. I mean, aside mm-hmm. from sleeping. Like, I mean, yeah. another harm reduction thing I would bring up is mm. if somebody's going to to try this, that they try to test their substances as well. Because blotter, there's a lot of different compounds that can fit on that. And they have mm. different safety profiles. So there's organizations like Dance Safe, which I don't know what they're doing during pandemic times. But when it's not a pandemic, you can test your substances with them sometimes occasionally. That's interesting. I'm really glad you brought that up, harm reduction. Something I'm also very interested in because it's a great way to talk about, you know, drugs and kind of like remove that fear, that anxiety, that stigma that surrounds them. So, you know, in your experience, what are some other really good harm reduction practices, if any, that we haven't covered right now? Um. So... As related to psychedelics, I think that integration is harm reduction. I think that's a really big thing I want to like drive home to people. Um, yeah, I would say that's the primary thing that isn't talked about. And then just starting with a low dose and going slow if somebody chooses to do a drug. And get it tested. Perfect. Yeah. Um, how do you, you know, if someone's interested in this type of stuff, like how do you get involved with this uh whether it's the academics academic side the more of the community side you know even what goes on in the community i don't even know like take us through a little bit about you know what's happening around all this and all the talks and conferences and and everything like that so it really depends on the path that you want to take Mm -hmm. um But if a person is interested in psychedelic research, um, and there's so many people interested in it because it's fascinating stuff, Mm -hmm. my biggest advice to them is to try to get any sort of research experience that they can and focus on trying to become a scientist first rather than a psychedelic researcher. And Mm -hmm. also trying to think of specific like testable questions and not just being vaguely interested. I think that the the difference between a researcher and somebody who is just interested in the field is having those potentially testable hypotheses about how these things work. Um, and yeah, just get involved with research as soon as you can. Um, if you're in in undergrad or whatever, um, just taking the initiative to do that in any sort of field that's vaguely related. Like I started out um, doing epidemiological like research with autism in 
minority children. So mm. completely different, completely different um, as a freshman um, in college. So that's what I would say for people interested in research. Um, but then also in terms of community, there's so many different psychedelic um, community organizations out there. A lot of them are in like meetup and stuff like that. And if you don't see one in your community, you have to start one. It's as simple mm. as that. And people will come to you. Um, it, it's really, really helpful to connect with other people interested in the field. And then you can be doing stuff like integration circles, which is like harm reduction. And you could be doing talks. All you have to do is just read some articles and, you know, learn learn it well enough to explain it to other people. And I feel like I really got my background in like the understanding of the research going on with psychedelics just by doing a lot of talks with my local psychedelic society at the time, Psy Atlanta. So um, I would say that the biggest thing to take away from that is if you want to get involved, take initiative and make your own opportunities. The labs that are out there doing psychedelic research are so, so limited, but if you work towards it, you can find a way to, to make your own projects. Um, and then another thing I would say is being in psychedelic research is not the path of least resistant. There's so, so many other fields that it's easier to get your foot in the door with. But if you're really passionate about it, I believe you should try to go for it as much as possible and try to start your own like independent research projects, like even if they're like surveys or whatever, or community organizations and just learn from that. And even if you don't end up in psychedelic research, the experience you will gain doing all of those projects while learning more about something you love, I think is definitely worth it. Interesting. When you're giving like talks, like, are you more of like a kind of like this, like a more general education process on, on this? Are you, you know, I guess more advocating at like a, a, a like not, not lobbying, but like you're more trying to push legislative change you know, what are kind of like the goals and the outcomes and what are some of the things that you're trying to tackle when you're, when you're giving like talks or if people wanted to give talks, like what should they try to get out of it? Well, I think it depends on their own interests. If somebody is interested in policy, then trying mm -hmm. to focus on that. But personally, my lens is to just focus on the science because I think the science speaks for itself. And I think that that will inspire rational decisions later on by people in power, including policymakers. Um, so what I try to do in my talks is just make the research accessible for people, demystify what's going on in this field and take it from something being super trendy where there's tons of articles that are like saying, oh, ayahuasca like changed my life or microdosing is like <laughs> making me the most productive ever to looking at, okay, what do we know about this um, from a research perspective? So, mm -hmm. and like explaining like a mystical experience in terms of like neuroscience too. And just, it, it, it's as much of an education in 
science as it is in psychedelics. Um, and I think that's going to help people <clears throat> have appropriate expectations for what the future of psychedelic medicine can do and also kind of de-associate psychedelics with the counterculture and all of that and show that it is a scientific field. Mm-hmm. Like, I know you do your own research on this and you have your community, but are there particular magazines, websites, you know, YouTube channels, influencers, podcasts, whatever that you kind of like you go to that when you, you want to kind of find out the information um, topics, conversation, like are there particular areas that, you know, as someone who's so involved in this goes to that maybe people could check out to, to keep learning even more about this subject and people are doing great work. So I go to PubMed, which is the database of all the research that exists. Uh, And, but I would say if somebody is seriously interested in this, they should be going to the actual research databases and trying to read the actual articles, even if they're not making a ton of sense, because over time you will learn. I learned just from reading the articles randomly on the internet and Mm. teasing it out that way. Um, But that's a lot of work. Um, I would say that um, Psychedelic Reviews is a good site. Um, They cover a lot of science sort of stuff. Psychedelic Support is really focused on the more like therapeutic aspects and integration practices and things like that. And they also have integration coaches on there as well. Um, The Intercollegiate Psychedelic Network, um, we're also kind of starting up and People can get involved with a lot of things that way. Um, psychedelic grad, um, we were working on writing a lot of like research-based articles as well. Mm. So, well, that's all. I, I I can't remember the site that I I found you through, but psychedelic I was watching. Grad. Yeah, I was I was I was wa- I was reading an article and I watched a, a video, um, and I was like, oh damn, this is awesome! And that that's how you kind of popped up. Um, I. You know, I'm not going to use the cliche words that everyone uses, but, you know, obviously times are weird right now, pandemic. I know in America right now, it's, it's even a little bit more wild. Um, so th- things like this sometimes get put on the back burner for a lot of people, um, rightfully so in some cases. I'm not disputing that. But I'm just kind of wondering before I let you go, like, are there some things that we can perhaps expect in the near future when it comes to whether it's more legislation or decriminalization or cutting edge research? Like, are there things that we can kind of keep our eyes open for that might be coming up sooner rather than later? Um, I would say that a lot of the, the clinical trials that have been ongoing are continuing during the pandemic, just with people taking proper like medical precautions wearing masks so everything that has been going on is still going on there's still psilocybin um trials for treatment resistant depression for cocaine use disorder for a number of conditions um and in in the near future psilocybin hopefully will be um made prescribable so Mm. it's been given in the u.s um FDA breakthrough treatments therapy status. So that means it's on the fast track 
for approval and likewise MDMA, even though it's not really a psychedelic per se, it's kind of in the umbrella of unconventional um, treatments that is also on the fast track for approval as a breakthrough treatment for um, PTSD. So all of that stuff is going on. That's very exciting. And I think that if the clinical trials continue to be promising that these substances will be made prescribable fairly soon. So yeah, I would say that's exciting. Nice. So I noticed you had some notes and some on, on uh, some paper there. Did I miss anything that you wanted to touch on? I want to make sure that all the information gets out there that you think is deemable. So I think that's everything. We nailed it, eh? Perfect. Um, if people want to, chance to give a plug, I don't know if you want to promote your social media, if you have a website, YouTube channel, anything like that or anything, but um, if people want to check out work or, or follow you or anything that you're mm -hmm. doing, um, where, where can they do that? So I occasionally write articles for Psychedelic Grad. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at hduran. Um, and yeah, check out um, IPN if you happen to be a student interested in pursuing this work professionally. Haley, you're the bomb. Thank you so much for this. Um, it's cool. I mean, we're in a pandemic, but being able to connect with people on different parts of the world in different time zones, it's, it's such an exciting opportunity for me. And I really appreciate you uh, giving me some time today. You're very welcome. Right. Thank you for having me on. Take care. All right. Bye. <laughs> You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.